Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already... Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. By the way, how did the word gay come into being? I'm curious. Nobody seems to know, really. It it does seem to be a product of the, quote, gay subculture, though. I became aware of it when I was first in college around 1949-50, and I I don't know. It's ironic, because the gay subculture has been anything but gay. It's this kind of reverse psychology Mm. when when you're really stomped on, you try and make a joke out of it. Somebody, obviously gay, has suggested (laughs) glum as the heterosexual alternative. (laughs) I was sitting sitting in this (laughs) glum. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. We're back with another interview drawn from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. The archive holds more than 5,000 programs that the pioneering oral historian and broadcast legend recorded for WFMT Radio in Chicago between 1952 and 1997. The history of LGBTQ organizing in Studd's hometown of Chicago goes all the way back to 1924. That's when Henry Gerber, a Bavarian immigrant, founded the Society for Human Rights, the first documented gay rights organization in the U.S., But the police soon swooped in, arrested several members, and the group dissolved. It would be a quarter century before gay people tried to organize again. In 1950, the Mattachine Society was founded in Los Angeles, and in the years that followed, like-minded groups sprung up around the country. Chicago's Mattachine Midwest organization got its start in 1965. One of its founders was Studd's close friend Pearl Hart, a civil rights attorney who became known as the guardian angel of Chicago's gay community for her tireless battle against police harassment. A few months after the Stonewall Uprising, Studs interviewed three of the organization's members, Valerie Taylor, Jim Bradford, and Henry Wiemhoff. Valerie Taylor was the pen name of Velma Tate, another Mattachine Midwest co-founder. She was a 56-year-old divorced mother of three and the author of several lesbian pulp novels. She was also Pearl Hart's longtime partner. Jim Bradford was the pseudonym of James Osgood. He was a 37-year-old librarian and then-president of Mattachine Midwest. And Henry Wiemhoff was a 23-year-old student at the University of Chicago. Let's join the spirited trio in Stud Studio in an interview first broadcast on February 19, 1970. We're really talking about 
freedom, aren't we? The quest for freedom and the quest for openness in an open society as to who we are as individuals, physically, politically, socially, sexually. Isn't that what it's about? People of all minority groups, I suppose. Could you, Valerie, would you describe being a lesbian or homosexual, being a member of a minority group? To some extent, I suppose it is. The best estimate I know is that from one-twentieth to one-tenth of the population have ac- have or have had active homosexual experience. It's impossible, really, to get any... Naturally, you're not going to take a census and get honest <laughs> answers on a matter like this. But I think that the male homosexuals feel this much more than women do. Why do you think that is? Society seems to be dreadfully hung up on the sex life of males, at least in this country. I don't know how it is in other places. Uh, Men are not supposed to have affectional friendships, and they're not supposed to stay single, and they're not supposed to share apartments. And it's only now that Henry's generation is coming out with long hair and ruffles on its shirts and so on and and confessing to an interest in gourmet cooking and so (laughs) on. Uh, A lot of these things, which we believe to be socially conditioned, have been regarded Mm. until recently as being sexually conditioned. I mean, Jim Bradford, you're over 30. I was thinking as Valerie's (laughs) talking and Henry, of course, is 23. And apparently Henry's generation, there's a slight gap. And today a generation is no longer 20, 25 years. It's 5, 10 years, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you feel, Jim, uh, Henry's much freer than you were when you were his age, isn't he? Oh, definitely than I was at that age, yes. I think uh, I have sort of loosened up <laughs> as I've gotten older and had more experience. I remember the first meeting I went to was Mattachine of New York in 1959. And the cops didn't raid the first meeting or the second meeting, so I decided it would be all right. Now... Uh, a year ago, I was out in San Francisco, and uh, several active organizations out there planned a uh, support demonstration in front of the federal building on July 3rd uh, as a gesture of support for the na- annual picketing of Independence Hall. It's called a- Annual Reminder Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew the president of SUR, Society for Individual Rights, who said, why don't you come and join us in the podium? Well, I gulped once or twice, but I said, <laughs> all right, I will. With the net effect that I was televised when a couple of years before I would never have even appeared on radio. So there's a certain liberation that comes with this this sort of participation. You simply f- feel that uh, these things are your own business and helping other people free themselves becomes part of your business and it's just great to do. So much of, of what gay people are afraid of is the result of an internalization and almost an exaggeration and distortion of what society has told us about ourselves and about our place in society. Um, s- so much of liberation in that sense uh, comes from just standing up and saying I'm gay and seeing that you know you don't have a heart attack on the spot or you don't mm-hmm. you aren't murdered by someone uh, I'm thinking of the phrase power see they have the button mm-hmm. gay power do you think this liberation this openness you think it came about uh, as a r- in some way related to the black revolution oh I think I think clearly if nothing else than a matter of uh, taking one's cues and not necessarily one's ideas but one's cues from from the black black revolution Um, I was in Mississippi in 1966 with the Meredith Freedom March and had done quite a bit of civil rights work in Chicago and around. And it gradually became quite clear to me that in some sense it was, I don't want to say hypocrisy because I don't think it was hypocrisy, (coughs) but there there was something wrong when I could work for what I felt right for other people and yet couldn't do the same for myself. And I'm not willing to pretend anymore that I'm any different than I am. 
I have found that in not pretending and not trying to <coughs> play a game anymore, that I can live a full life and be happy. And there's no reason why other people can't do the same thing. So we come to the question of pretending and it's monogamy, polygamy, homosexuality, heterosexuality, pretending to be that which you are not. Kids yeah. used to be taught about masturbating. Is, are we allowed to discuss masturbation on your program? Well, you've done it. <laughs> 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 that it was a perfectly, parents used to think, you know, it was a perfectly terrible thing and you tied the kid's hands up or something and slapped him and you taught him his brain was going to decay or something. And now I am pleased to find from my daughter-in-law that the baby books tell you all, all little children masturbate and you shouldn't pay any attention to it. People used to have all these terrible guilts, and the whole yeah. thing was based on a misconception. You yeah. see, there is a parallel, I think. So we come back to the question of guilt. Yeah. We come back to the question of who has, uh, who has established this matter of guilt and innocence. I don't really think I've ever felt guilt. I felt anxiety, and perhaps uh, anxiety that wasn't quite proportionate to the consequences of, of my being homosexual. A lot of people do feel a tremendous sense of guilt. And I think the responsibility for that has to be squarely laid on the shoulders of the church. The church has said that if you want to be truly religious, you have to be this. And gay people just you know, can't You the be church, of course, you mean any church. I mean the you church. About religion generally. Religion. Uh, <coughs> Christianity, specifically Judeo-Christianity. In your case, uh, Jim? I think probably roughly the same thing has applied to me. I've felt anxious, but not particularly <laughs> guilt-ridden. And I've always felt which probably says more for the family I was raised in, my parents, than anything else. And I've always felt that when it came to a showdown that, well, the preacher was wrong, not me. Family. I suppose this question often comes up. Uh, discovery on the part of family. Was that, was that a problem here in your case, Henry? Well, of course, homosexuality is something that every f family may talk about occasionally. It comes up in conversations. And I can remember specifically my family was... Uh, rather skitterish about the subject when it ever came up, snide remarks perhaps, something like that. And I was very, very much taken with the fact that my family, when they, when they were confronted with it, didn't know anything about it, but were very much concerned and wanted to know what it meant, what did it mean to be gay, what was it that they could do to support, support me in that kind of a situation. I think really the problem, in large part, is the problem of ignorance. They think, well, for example, if you've ever traveled abroad the first time, you don't know what to expect. You expect everything to be different, and once you sort of get used to it, or maybe by the second trip, you realize that the similarities outweigh the differences. Mm -hmm. I think that's it with us. People think that we're incapable of love, we're incapable of long-term relationships, we're incapable of holding down a job. My partner and I have been together. We've known each other almost 17 years. We've lived together 15 years, so this proves that it can be done. Uh, when did you first sense, for example, that somebody kept you apart, or you were considered different? Valerie, you? Well, I don't think that my experience is typical of lesbians because in the first place I have been married. I have three sons slightly older than Henry, so I, if I act maternal towards <laughs> him, I hope he'll forgive me. Uh, in fact, I have two grandchildren whom I dote on. Also, I, of course, I have seven published lesbian novels, and this gives me a very good out. I have never been <coughs> picked up in a gay bar, but if I were, you see, I could say I was doing research. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the real question isn't, you know, why are we gay or why are other people straight, but why is it that we're restricted in our, in our abilities to love on an on a emotional and a physical level both? People, as people, uh, regardless of gender, or sex, um, 
it seems that society is, is repressive of, of sexual feelings. Well, doesn't a lot of this go back to property and inheritance? In the old <coughs> days, the well, wife was her husband's property, and he had to be sure that she wasn't laying someone else because the children had to be his. Jim, I'm sorry if that word offends you. I could have said <laughs> worse words. He say land, WFMT. <laughs> To be sure, well, having <laughs> sexual relations sounds so terribly sterile somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, because the children were the husband's inheritors of his property, mm. and it was a big mm. property deal. I wonder if Valerie isn't touching on something very terribly strong. You know, perhaps at this moment, this is a rather critical and exhilarating, though traumatic moment in the history of man, isn't it? I, I think we're at a, at a, a, a crisis stage. We're, we're challenging a lot of things that we've inherited that are becoming increasingly irrelevant. And if we're going to survive, we're going to have to deal with these and reformulate these uh, thought systems and structures so that they're truly human. Perhaps we can go back to beginnings, the very nature of our society and these fears of someone who is different. Valerie was saying that uh, authority <coughs> is not quite as rough with lesbians. Is it perhaps because women themselves are considered uh, less important <coughs> in society? Partly that, and partly I think uh, women, gay women, are a little better. If they don't wish to say, I'm a lesbian, I'll join Mattachine or I'll join the Daughters of Belitis, it's a little easier for them to conceal their identity. Well, don't you think it has something to do with the <coughs> fact that affection and tenderness expressed between women is something yes. much yeah. more ac yes. accepted in society. It's considered unmasculine for guys to respond toward one another the <coughs> with the same degree of affection and openness of feeling mm -hmm. as women yeah. are expected to. I was just thinking of the dance that we went to at the Eleanor Club. We, this was one of our first radical mm -hmm. actions oh, at yeah. the university. Great. We went as gay uh -huh. people and we decided that this was part of personal as well as social liberation. Mm -hmm. And the girls took to it just like ducks to water. The reaction, however, us dancing together, that is the males in the group, mm -hmm. was considerably different. This was something that was not accepted. This was something that was not... Uh, isn't this something that I would call the John Wayne syndrome? Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, and this is exactly. Isn't this it? <coughs> it's the fact that masculinity is associated with violence, with anti-affection. Yeah. yeah. This, this sense that uh, in order to be male, in order to uh, be masculine, you have to be able to compete and you have to be able to uh, fight and... and uh, express whatever uh, whatever feelings you feel towards another male in terms of, of, of aggression rather than uh, in terms of uh, affection. We tend, I think all of us tend to feel that people who are very antagonistic to, to homosexuals, you know, the guy who wants to beat up on all the <coughs> queers and so on, are afraid of their own homosexual uh. component, basically. The reaction yeah. to our gay liberation group, we wrote an article in the Maroon and we've been running ads regularly, and yeah. it's very interesting to see the differentials and in, in responses to it. Um, straight people that, uh, I use this w term straight, that's another subculture term, and a lot you of mean people glum, don't. of course. <laughs> 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 Those people that are, are well-adjusted uh, are all for it. They say, you know, yes, we agree, you're an oppressed minority, and why don't you do something about it, you know? Uh, they've been very receptive, even to the point of being willing to wear the buttons that we're making, mm -hmm. say, out of the closets and into the streets. Give me one of those buttons. <laughs> 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 we, we are thinking of the group on, on campus at the University of Chicago that perhaps one of the best things gay people can do right now is to form something, buy a house maybe, and I hesitate to use the word a commune, but uh, a, a group living experience in which gay people 
can prove to themselves that they can function effectively living closely together. I know this was quite an experience to me. I put an ad for gay roommates in the maroon, and Shelley called, and Shelley's female, and I hadn't realized that quite, <laughs> you know, consciously <laughs> that females can be homosexual too, and right. Shelley moved in. And the sense of, of living together and being able to share, you know, our experiences in, in talking during the day, eating dinner together, uh, that sense of loneliness then becomes becomes something we hold in common and are able to uh, uh, do away uh, with. What happened when you had that ad in the maroon? Was there any uh, repercussions? Was there any, any repercussions? There were a couple crank calls. I expected them. But mostly I got calls from people on campus that weren't looking for a place to stay but felt extremely isolated and frustrated and afraid on campus and didn't know how they could uh, meet other people, how, who they could talk to about it. and. Uh, it was then that I realized that there was a real need for a, a liberation, a, a wider sense than just a personal liberation. I had a letter last week from a young man, 21, who said, in effect, I am a homosexual. I don't know any homosexuals. I'm afraid to go to the bars. How can I meet somebody? He'd read a letter of mine in yeah. a newspaper. This kind of hits at the, the whole problem of isolation, a sense of inferiority and guilt. That, that's been forced on gay people, and, and they don't have to take it. I mean, uh, especially now they're realizing they don't have to take it. But in the past, well, until, I guess, the Kinsey Report had a, a great effect yeah. in, in oh, showing yeah. that there were, you know, there were the, these percentages of people in society, and the sense of, of not being, in some sense, a freak uh, had a great effect on people. And uh, yeah. more and more we're becoming aware that many of the things that have been accepted as, as normal, quote, normal, mm -hmm. have large elements of repression and, and oppression and uh, c uh, can, in fact, be subject to criticism and change. And the more people realize that, the less afraid they are of, of analyzing their own situation in those terms, too. This is interesting. I was listening because in my mind, this is my, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that the homosexual in the past been regarded as rather conservative mm -hmm. in nature. Yeah. Well, there are all points of view on this. Now, my honest feeling is that uh, when we do public speaking, I usually start elaborating the types of jobs homosexuals have held simply to show that you find homosexuals from all in all backgrounds, religiously speaking, economically, socially, and so on. So it's really impossible to say they're conservative, they're liberal, they're middle of the road. Mm -hmm. I think there may be a slight tendency towards some degree of conservatism simply because of this need to hide mm -hmm. problem. But on the other hand, it, it's gone the opposite way with me. I've been concerned about social justice since I was a kid. And I never got into the homophile movement until I realized, well, here's something that's su suddenly Equally. growing up in our area. Yeah. But it was more from the social justice aspect yeah. than from the Me Too aspect. Uh, we were considering the possibility of having to picket the police headquarters several months ago because we just couldn't seem to get an answer out of them. That's cleared up in somewhat in the meantime. But at that point, you're talking about entrapment now? You're talking uh, about well, the idea of entrapment? Uh, the specific point was that several bars had been raided, and mm -hmm. we felt it was unjustified, and we were having trouble getting through to headquarters to get an appointment to talk with them. That panned out, so we dropped the threat to pick it. But when we were talking about the, an amazing assortment of people, some of whom had been at the same job for a great number of years and really had an investment in keeping hidden if they were worried, came forward and said, you can count me in if you're going to do it. Really? I'm not the least bit yeah. afraid. It's about time we stood up and started doing things like this. Uh, has there been uh, a lessening, or what has been the attitude toward authorities, specifically police, uh, toward uh, homosexuals? Toward lesbians, obviously, less. I don't know about police women. I'm not up on that. <laughs> oh, there are a lot of yeah. wonderful yeah. butch police women in this <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, they'll never speak to us Sorry, this. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I would say, and this, I think, is something that... Uh, 
the faint of heart should ponder, since we have stood up to the police department and said, look, you're really overstepping your bounds, you're really violating our rights, cut it out or we're going to bring suit against you. We'd rather sit down and discuss it with you. We'd rather see, we'd rather see uh, what areas we can agree on and what your legitimate functions are. Uh, let's do this, but if we can't do it any other way, we'll bring you into court because you really have overstepped your bounds. You've taken our rights away, and we're not going to put up with it one bit more. I think, though, that we hit, when we start talking about the police department, we hit a, a really deeper problem, and that is the police really couldn't be doing a lot of the things they're doing if they, in some sense, didn't have the sanction of society and social attitudes. Yeah. Yeah, like we'll, we'll probably fade out on this conversation just as we faded in. We're thinking, Valerie, so any thoughts come to your mind as we're talking now? Uh, main thing, if I could just say three words to the entire heterosexual world or uninformed world, they would be homosexuals are people. We just like everybody else except in the matter of whom we go to bed with and what we do in bed really isn't all that different, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so it shouldn't be and really no one else is concerned. Is yeah, it? and so yeah. people shouldn't think about us as though we were some different kind of a species. It's a, it's a stereotype, you know, like the racial or ethnic stereotypes. And it, it, we're just like everybody else. And you get right down to what the theme of our discussion is freedom and humanity. Thank you very much. Wow, thanks. Thank you, Stan. A few months after the Mattachine Midwest interview was recorded, Chicago hosted the world's very first Pride March on June 27th 1970, one day before New York City held its first march. One of the Chicago March's main organizers was Henry Wiemhoff. Henry later moved to New York and got involved with the National Association of Black and White Men Together, a gay, multiracial, and multicultural organization. He died from AIDS-related complications in 1995. He was 48. Valerie Taylor went on to co-found an annual lesbian writers' conference in Chicago and continued to write both fiction and poetry. In early 1975, her partner, Pearl Hart, fell deathly ill. The hospital's family-only policy kept Valerie from visiting her until it was too late. By then, Pearl was in a terminal coma. Valerie later moved to Tucson, Arizona, where she advocated for elder rights and the environment. She died in 1997 at the age of 84. Jim Osgood died in 2003. He was 71. He and his partner had been together for nearly a half century. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Senior producer Nahani Rouse, co-producer and deputy director Inga Dataya, audio engineer John Gordon, researcher Brian Faree, photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Denny Olorenko. Thank you as well to Heather Brown for doing some impromptu research for us at Chicago's Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Special thanks to Genoise Berman and our founding editor and producer, Sarah Burningham. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season eight of this podcast is produced in association with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive, which is managed by WFMT in partnership with the Chicago History Museum. A very special thank you to Allison Shine Holmes, Director of Media Archives at WTTW Chicago PBS and WFMT Chicago, for giving us access to Studs Terkel's treasure trove of interviews. You can find many of them at studsterkel.wfmt.com. 
Season 8 of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, proud Chicagoans Barbara Levy Kipper and Erwin and Andrew Press, and our listeners, including Janet Beecham and retired United States Air Force Brigadier General David Cotton. David hopes that in sharing his military rank, others might feel encouraged by his indirect example to realize it's okay to be who you are. Thanks, David. Thanks, Janet. Whether you're new to Making Gay History or a longtime fan, sign up for our newsletter so you're the first to know what we've got coming up. You can do that at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long, until next time.